It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. I am very stirred up at present. I told the crowd this morning as I presented this Daily Thunder message that I have hot lava bubbling inside me, a significant passion for the church to rise up right now. Hey, this is Eric. Before I launch into today's message full of bubbling lava, I wanted to mention to those of you that are looking for that perfect spiritual activity to engage in this August, to prayerfully consider joining us for our next week-long intensive training that begins on August 22nd. If you can't make it out for our five-week program this fall, then this one-weeker might be just the ticket. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to learn more. Now let's visit Winston Churchill's memoirs in the fall of 1943 and review his vast list of mental distractions, burdens, and anxieties. And then let's visit the Word of God right now in 2020 and be reminded that no matter how dark it gets, our God is Savior and Lord, and victory is sure. Well, good morning, everyone. We are... Uh, heading into, what is it, episode 59 of a series. Isn't it, you start to get to this, it's, it's almost ridiculous, like Monopoly money when you get into you know, episode 59 of a series. It's like, come on, that's ridiculous. But it's been a really fun series. I, I've enjoyed it, and I, I, you're going to notice I may, after World War II, just go into the years after the war. And then pretty soon I'm like, and in the year 2020, uh, <laughs> I've thoroughly enjoyed this process. So, if you've been following, you would know that we're sort of in the latter part of 1943. Uh, to give a, a quick review, World War II is actually going to start in September of 1939 with the invasion of Germany into Poland. And that is such an obscure piece of uh, World War II uh, fact and data because technically the war is going to start long before that because Germany is an aggressor long before that. And yet that is finally the point when the Allies have had enough because the Allies don't want war and Hitler's playing upon that. They don't want to fight. They don't want an issue. They don't want to skirmish. They just went through World War I. And to be honest, they are done with war. That was called the war, the war to end all wars. They don't want to see war again. And so what that period was in the 30s was a very dark time in the world uh, at the time because you have a, we don't, we had the Great Depression here in the United States, but there was a Great Depression over the entire world. And what you see is a darkness that began to envelop. And in the midst of that, you see the rise of Hitler. You see the rise of Mussolini. You see this evil that begins to permeate the culture. And you see the good guys doing nothing. In fact, excusing themselves from the battle. Okay, now I'm bringing that up not because that actually helps us in any way unless we identify with it. <laughs> and we say, wait a minute. Is that what's happening today? And we see a very similar pattern. We see a, I mean, it was lawlessness. Hitler would say, I will not invade uh, Austria. I will not invade the Sudetenland. I will not invade Czechoslovakia. And what does he do? He does. He does exactly what he says he's not going to do. He was not going to take the Rhineland with his troops. I mean, that, that was agreed. Uh, and then he does. And the allies do nothing. And so what we see is an encroachment of evil. We have laws in this land, for instance, and they're supposed to protect the church of Jesus Christ. And yet what we see is a deliberate step across those lines. And for the most part, the church is doing nothing. There was a church in uh, 
Nevada that stood up and said, look, this whole 50 uh, limit for attendance is sort of ridiculous when there's a casino right next door. Uh, I, I, did I say Nevada? Did I say Las Vegas? I think it was in Reno. And there's like a, a casino right down the street here next door that has uh, huge amounts of people in it. And yet, why is it that we are precluded from having more than 50? That's, that's unjust. So they had more than 50. As far as I know, I don't know the full story. Supreme Court ruled against them. That the casino can have as many as it wants, but the church can't. So what you see is an encroachment, very similar uh, to, to what was happening in that time, where suddenly darkness is getting away with nonsense. And where are the good guys? That's what you're crying out for in, in 1939. You're like, hey, where are the good guys? That's precisely the feeling that you sort of feel in the air now. Where it's like, where are the good guys? Where are the, where, who's going to stand up? And so in the midst of all this uh, turmoil, you have the launch of World War II where the Allies finally stand up. Neville Chamberlain realizes he's been taken advantage of. And so Neville Chamberlain still has a little gumption. He goes down in history as the ultimate pacifist, the ultimate appeaser, but he actually is going to be the guy that says enough is enough. So we need to give him credit where credit is due. Now he blew it all the years up to that, He's going to be removed from office, and Winston Churchill is going to be set in in the darkest point in history. Right at the worst possible moment to take the leadership of a nation, he gets handed the leadership. Okay, so that was uh, May of 1940. Rough, rough waters that Great Britain is heading into. So we have gone through all those rough waters, and that's actually what intrigues me most about World War II is those first two and a half, three years of the war because it is so dark and so difficult and I want to watch and measure the men in the midst of it. It's like, how are they responding? Because I want, I'm very attracted to Christian history, but what attracts me to biographies is like I want to see God wind up a man or a woman and then set them into the hardest and most difficult moments and then I want to watch what they do. Because in a sense, I want models. I want to know what it looks like. I can read it in scripture, but I want to see it animated. I want to see how it works in our day and age. Not just Paul. I, I, I Praise God for the example of Paul. But I want to see Paul now. I want to see what he would do now. And that was what was so critical about the illustration of George Mueller. Is George Mueller is basically saying, look... I know that you guys think that this sort of faith is for back then. I want to show you that it is for right now. And so we, ironically, look at George Mueller and we say, well, I know that that faith worked back then, but you know, who knows if it would work now? I mean, if you actually stood forward like George Mueller, I mean, how do we know it would work? That was back then faith. We need someone who rises up and says, it's for right now faith. Same God. He hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. There's no shadow of turning in him. And so this is an exercise for all of us. So this is called the mind of the general, and technically I could have called it the mind of the prime minister, but that wouldn't, it would have been long, uh, and I've, I had a long title yesterday for our sermon, so I'm trying to, you know, trim my, my titles down. And so that could be misleading, because I'm actually going to dive into the mind of Churchill, and then I'm going to show you the mind of our general, capital G, general, capital K, king, capital PM, <laughs> prime minister. He is the prime minister of ministers. And his mindset is very different than the mindset of this world and even the mindset of the church right now. And so one of the key things that I want to do in this message is I want us all to deliberately choose to step into the mind of our king. We, 
One of the gifts that we have received in and through the work of the cross and the subsequent gift of the Holy Spirit to us, becoming his body, is we have his faculties. We have access to his resource. We have the mind of Christ. So therefore, the way that he views things, we can view them that way. The way that he looks at any circumstance, we can actually have his lens and look at it. So when we see someone toppling a statue and spray painting it, it's like, okay, God, I know how I would naturally look at that. It would make me really mad and my blood would boil and I would start yelling things. Maybe some bad words would come out, right? Instead, I am going to take off those glasses. I'm going to stick on God's. I want to look at this through the lens of God. You know that he's not always happy. He's not always just going, yay, thumbs up. <laughs> there are times that he's mad. And so I want to know how to view things, not in my flesh, but in accordance with my God, in accordance with the Holy Spirit. And that's what the mind of the general is. And so I'm going to utilize World War II to leverage something that is very applicable to us right now. We live in tenuous times. And I happen to be really excited about the times in which we live. And in fact, with every passing day, I'm getting sort of giddy with the times in which we live. I mean, this is, and I, so I really mean it that this is exciting to me. There is, I find that there is a, a call, sort of like I feel a commander saying to me, Ludi, I'm like, sir, yes, sir. You've been trained for right now. Are you ready? Are you prepared for battle? Sir, yes, sir. There is something that I feel inside of me. It's a calling deep unto deep. And there's a smile that is creasing my soul. And I, I have to admit, over the past months, I've gone through different emotions with this, and it hasn't all been glee. <laughs> it hasn't all been, yay! It's been a struggle. I've been struggling through a fog bank, as many of us have, to see straight, to understand what is going on so that we can appropriate the truth of God's kingdom and apply it right now. I want the mind of the general. So Churchill's mind in late 1943. So this is going to be an oversimplification because what this man is dealing with, when you go through his memoirs, he is dealing with so many things, so many weights, so many challenges because he is not just dealing with Great Britain. When you're the prime minister of Great Britain, you have to deal with Great Britain. Oh, pff, Great Britain isn't even in his thinking hardly other than, okay, you fine? All right, let's take on the world. We have issues all over the place. Like it's a dam with spurts coming out of it. It's like, okay, pff, and you're trying to po poke the hole, stop the, the water, and because if this dam breaks, it's over. The world floods, right? It's, it's a bad situation, so I, you don't want to be the prime minister of Great Britain in late 1943. It's, it's pretty intense. So I'm just going to give you a couple things that are coming up at this season, okay? Uh, you, you have issues. Now, this is just t scratching the surface. Germany is heavily fortified in the mountains of Italy, okay? So they've... They've made their way, they've taken the Mediterranean zone, which is a huge, you know, Operation Torch. Then they took, uh, uh, I can't even think of what it's called now, the little island, Sicily. They took Sicily, uh, big maneuver. They took the toe, they took the foot. Now they're, they're moving up through Italy, but uh, Germany's now fortified in the mountains. This is not going to be easy. This is going to be a long war. You get that feeling that it's not like they just sort of run with their tails between their legs. They're smart. They're sharp. They don't want to lose Europe, any part of it. And so now you got issues with Germany clearly fortified and strong in the mountains of Italy. 
The island of Rhodes is a strategic location, and this has created some consternation for Churchill. These are all, by the way, small stories that I wouldn't probably go into. That's why I'm just sort of dumping them out there. The island of Rhodes is a political quagmire because Churchill really feels that they should direct at least a small portion of their resources to take Rhodes, this, uh, this island. Eisenhower disagrees. Now, Eisenhower is over the operation in the Mediterranean up through Italy. He's the one that was over Operation Torch. And Eisenhower, I know, he's, he's one of ours. You know, if you're American, then you're like, yes, Eisenhower, go Eisenhower. However, if you're in the Churchill shoes, Eisenhower is a very pompous man. And he is not going to listen to Churchill. He is dismiss, dismissing Churchill because Churchill isn't a general. And so as a result, Churchill is gonna time and again say, I need resources so we can take roads. And Eisenhower is basically going to just say, hey, you mind your own business. And then he's going to appeal, Churchill is going to appeal to his good friend, Roosevelt, to say, hey, could you convince your man to give us, and Roosevelt's gonna side with Eisenhower. So can't you feel the tension? You feel the diminishment of Churchill in this time, whereas if you're him, you're recognizing your voice is gaining less and less power. Once St Stalin and Roosevelt have the most influence of the war and Churchill is gaining less and less, even though he's the only one that was willing to stand in the beginning. You sort of feel this. And, and so if I'm going to get into Churchill's shoes, I got things on my mind. <laughs> and they're political, they're challenging. It's like all of it is weighing on you, but this is like personal too. There's even personal dimensions in this. So I said the island of Rhodes matter is disturbing and threatening his deep connection with Roosevelt. The LTVs, it's interesting by the way, before I get to the LTVs, it's interesting but Churchill never once speaks ill of Roosevelt. Roosevelt is passed on by this time when he's writing his memoirs of World War II. He never once speaks ill, whereas, and he doesn't speak ill of Eisenhower, but I know Churchill fairly well by now that when he when he appreciates a man, he'll give him a compliment. He doesn't give, Rose, or he doesn't give Eisenhower any compliments. It doesn't mean he doesn't respect him. He's a very good general, right? But hey, I, if I were you, Eisenhower, I would listen to the prime minister of Great Britain, okay? And that's what you could feel Churchill going through that. The LTVs, those are landing craft. This is an invention for World War II that is going to actually be critical for what we're going to call D-Day, okay? It's the operations, the amphibious warfare that goes from water unto land, because that's a very difficult thing. On all of Europe, if Hitler owns that European landscape, Great Britain and all the allies have to somehow get onto land, and that's called amphibious warfare, where they go from water to land. And so these, eight, these LTVs are, are this invention, actually it's going to come from Churchill himself, where there are these huge structures, metal structures, that will come up and they'll let down like a moat. <laughs> and then tanks will literally drive across that moat onto land. I mean, it's, it's a pretty cool invention. We take it for granted, you know, it's like, oh yeah, LTVs. Yeah, but they didn't exist, and somehow they need to take Europe, well, they need to come across water to get there, how are they gonna do this? And that's all part of what's taking place, but they need a lot of these to be able to invade in Normandy. So they're planning the invasion of Normandy in 1944, June of 1944, but they're behind. It's like they're not producing fast enough, and this is stressing Churchill out too. You can feel it as you're going through. It's like, come on, guys. Will you get your manufacturing going? We have work to do. There's issues, right? We have distractions. Churchill's mind is on a lot of things. Oh, no. And now we have Stalin. Okay, 
it's a tough one having to have an ally named Joseph Stalin. Now, if any of you have studied Joseph Stalin in history, he's not the most pleasant man, okay? That's an understatement. He's a murderer. He's a bad guy. He's as bad as Hitler, let's just be honest. And yet, the allies need him to cooperate. They need him to defeat Hitler uh, on the Eastern Front. They don't want him to side with Hitler, right? They, they like them sort of being antagonists with each other and fighting each other because that's good. That's eliminating Hitler's strength. But there, it's hard to cheer for Stalin's victory, but you sort of need to in this one. It's a very awkward season of history. And guess what? Stalin is being, well, Stalin. Stalin is actually one of my favorite sub-themes of Churchill's writings, these are thousands of pages of writings, by the way, uh, of Churchill's writings when he processes Stalin. Because he does it very, with a British flair, where he's very honorable, but he will, he'll have this humor underneath of describing this man, who is cantankerous as all get out. Okay, so Stalin is demanding things. And Great Britain is just doing its best to survive in all of this, and Stalin is always demanding things like, hey, we're the center of the universe, we deserve all of your resources, and why aren't we getting them? Why aren't you risking everything from Great Britain to serve us? I mean, this is literally how he behaves. It's like, excuse me, buddy, but we are the ones that were standing in the war when you were aiding Hitler, and now just because Hitler turns against you, you think we should bow down and worship you. I mean, come on. You could just feel this tension. Okay, so Stalin is once again in late 1943 being Stalin. Okay, and he is demanding convoys through the Arctic and being quite dishonorable about it. Okay, so that's just always a sub-theme uh, when you go through. And you, you sort of chuckle along. I, I don't think it was always a chuckle tee-hee thing for Churchill, though. Okay, guys, are you stressed out yet? Now, that's not including just the Battle of the Atlantic, the fact that the Japanese still control the Pacific. I mean, God, you got issues all over the world, right? Not including the fact that, I mean, I'm just saying the Germanies are, are occupying uh, the mountains of Italy. They're all over Europe, okay? This is like draining demand. You got Jews being exterminated throughout, you know, all of Europe. I mean, this is bad time, right? And you're in charge, okay? So you feel the weight, right? That's the mind of Churchill. The church's mind in mid-2020. You know, I haven't thought about the fact that you have Churchill and then church. And it even sounds sort of like the church's mind. It sounds like Churchill, right? And so I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, so this is the church's mind in mid-2020. We have things on our mind, too. There are things that are weighing us down. So let's go through a few of those. The church is asleep. For those of us that are like, hey, let's go. Let's do this thing. Hey, and you hear this, what, what, is, it, what is a sleep sound? That, that's, that doesn't sound very good. Is that what it sounds like? Because you want to go zzz, you know, like you see the zzz. Whoever goes zzz, no one does, right? The church is asleep. Its leaders mostly silent. It doesn't mean they're all silent. It just means it feels like it. Okay, just like, you know, Germany occupying the mountains of Italy. It's like, ah, this is a distraction. It's like, oh, I wanted them to flee. I wanted them to leave. Instead, they entrenched themselves right smack in the most formidable part of Italy. Lies are spreading like gangrene and truth is muzzled. We got disinformation all over this country and all over this world right now. And what you crave is truth. Just someone could, could someone just tell me the truth? <laughs> I just want to know what's really going on. I don't know. I don't want the spin. I don't want the haze. I don't want the fog machine, you know, that they're sticking out there. I want to see clearly. We don't live in a time of clarity. We live in a time where we need to hold our ground. There are certain things we do know right now. We know the truth. 
And you can say, well, what is the truth? Tell me the truth about COVID-19, Eric. Well, I can't tell you the truth about COVID-19, but I can tell you the truth. It's in the word of God. You see, what God has spoken is still true today, and it is our light in the midst of darkness. Let it shine in our souls. But we are distracted. Many of us are feeling this. The worst thing you could probably possibly do is watch the news right now. It is not giving you hope. It is not giving you truth. It is not presenting you with a kingdom worldview. It is showing you something very alternate, alternate reality sort of stuff. The next one on the list, lawlessness is suddenly hip. Isn't that strange when rioting and breaking windows and harming police is cool? Isn't that a weird thought that that is actually hip and cool? It is cool to wear a Black Lives Matter shirt right now or to stick Black Lives Matter. I mean, I went on my Fitbit thing to get, I had to do something. I went to their homepage. It's like Black Lives Matter right on the front. And that's cool and that's hip. Well, it sounds really good, but do you guys know what that organization is fostering right now? I'm all for the fact that black lives matter. I'm not for what that organization is doing. It is sponsoring an anti-Christian movement, an anti-male, an anti-white, an anti-normal sexuality orientation. Everything that I would represent if you were to say, who is this guy? Oh, that guy's Eric Ludi. What does he represent? Well, the exact opposite of what this organization represents, except for the fact that I love racial equality. I have no issue with it. I mean, I have two little uh, black kids in my own home, so there's no issue with me, right? And yet, this is all-out war, but it is now hip to support that which is tearing down our world. That's weird. And law enforcement is incorrect. And I put quotes around incorrect. Isn't that weird when law enforcement and policemen are now the bad guys? You know, I've said this before that we used to, in our public school system, bring in policemen as the heroes. Almost every school, school, school kid, uh, young kid show, you know, that is trying to have any moral or anything would always portray the policeman as the hero. You know, hey kids, this is your local policeman and he's one of the heroes of our community. Instead, it's flipped where now he's one of the enemies. Okay, whoa, that's weird. This is the world we live in. Can you see that we have some things weighing on our minds? It's like, what's wrong? What's going on? Fear is cool. It's never been that way. But now if you're fearful, you're cool. That is odd. And if you're fearless, you're part of a problem. Because it means you have this nonchalance and you don't care. You're negligent. That's upside down. We all feel it. So this is just the church's mind. This is what we're distracted with. Churchill had his issues back in late 1943. We have our issues today. So Isaiah 59, 9 through 15. I'm going to read you something and you're going to recognize that this isn't altogether unusual. What we're dealing with. This is actually historical. We have the age-old battle between light and darkness. And so what I want you to do as I read this is pick out, first of all, how the enemy is maneuvering, and then I want you to get the mind of the general on it. Therefore, justice is far from us. You ever felt that? There's people lying out there. There's people stealing, cheating, destroying and there doesn't seem to be any justice system for it. Have you felt that? It's like, this isn't right. 
And that's exactly what you see here. Therefore, justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness. Wow, boy, it sounds like it's reading my mind. For brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind. You're groping for something that would stabilize, create some kind of form and some kind of boundary. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. We all growl like bears. Boy, that's an interesting statement. I don't know that I could. When I read that one, I wasn't like, well, I don't know. But maybe that is true. Have you ever heard people grumbling lately about what's going on? It's like, I'm sick and tired. You, you get with a certain group of people, and all you have to do is bring something up. And you'll hear the growling like bears. You know, it's like, burr, burr, burr. I don't know what a bear sounds like, but that's sort of what it's like. And moan sadly like doves. That's quite the contrast. <laughs> we look for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppressions and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. Boy, that's an incredible passage to link with what we're going through right now. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off for truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. So truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. He who departs from evil is actually the one being hunted. Isn't that a fascinating statement? You're the problem. Go get them, guys. Anyone who is going to shoo away the evil and say, no, I will not let that evil touch me, becomes the prey. Whoa, we got an upside-down world here. So I'm going to give you God's mind on it right here, the mind of the general. And the Lord saw it. And it displeased him that there was no justice. So just when you're thinking that maybe God doesn't care, think again. You see, this is the mind of the general that we need to step into and recognize that he is very present right now. He knows precisely what is going on and there is an agony inside of our God and that is what you are identifying with. But never for once think it is up to us to solve this issue. God is our salvation. He always has been. And he desires to move in this earth and to do what our God does. What happens in Isaiah 59 from this point forward is pretty exciting. In other words, what you have is a stage that is set with all sorts of dark characters with dark clothes on and they're mischievous and they're malevolent and they're getting away with nonsense and now the narrator comes to the front and says, can anything be done about this darkness? Can anything be done about this evil? Is there not a savior? Is there not a man who will stand? And then you know, it closes for the intermission and we're like, oh no, please God, there must be someone. Do you remember John in the book of Revelation where this book cannot be opened? It has these mysteries in it and he's weeping. But there is one who can open that book. It's funny. I mean, John, don't you realize you know, what's going on? This is like you're being brought in through something. Don't you know that the lamb that was slain can open the seals of that thing? 
don't we realize who is the Savior in this time? Don't you realize that his work on that cross 2,000 years ago is not just bottled up and kept 2,000 years ago and it's like, oh, wouldn't that be fun to look at in a museum? This is alive and kicking right now. The power of the Almighty is present tense. His promises are just as good right now as they were the moment the pen of that writer wrote them out or the word of the, came out of the mouth of that prophet. This is the living truth, and we as the church are built upon it. And if we fix ourselves, our feet, our souls to this rock, when the winds and rains come and beat against our house, we will not be moved. So the strategic mind, I like the word. You know, a general has to have a strategic mind. And what you're going to see is a lot of generals after World War II are going to, in a, sort of, in a sense, gang up on Churchill. They don't like the fact that he's going down in history as the hero of heroes. And it actually really bothers them. Generals have a tendency to be extremely arrogant and proud men, historically. I mean, if you were to just study generalship, you recognize there's a certain personality type that gravitates towards being generals. Because if you, were, if you study any, any of these words, you think, who would want that job? Well, let me tell you the, uh, the sort of person that does. <laughs> and arrogance, and they think very highly of their own opinion. That's what makes them good generals, ironically, is they have to be very confident. This will work. And then the other general goes, that's an idiot. Let, pick me. That's what they'll do. They'll vie for position, and they usually hate each other. Okay, not a very healthy thing. Okay, that's why I love Jesus. He's a pattern for a good general, right? He is the general that's going to lay down his life, and he is going to increase the strength of those around him as opposed to diminish it. Okay, so, you know, I don't want to criticize any generals, but I do want to praise the true general of generals. But our general has a strategic mind, and he is going to lay out a way that we are to fortify our minds in this time. Because as a Christian, our battle is not against flesh and blood, which makes it awkward to know what to do in a time like this. It's like, okay, what am I supposed to do? God, I'm ready to draw my sword. Is there an ear that I can cut off? Remember Peter? It's like, oh, come on, bud. That's not how we're going to fight. There is a job for us to do, but we need to be awake. Peter wasn't. We need to be alert and sharp and ready. And God's going to actually lay out a pattern for a mind that we are to have as we enter into this battle. And many of us have not had this, and that's why I'm bringing it up. It's obvious in Scripture. We, I mean, as I read this, you're going to be like, oh, pff, I know that. Yeah, you know it, but you need to do it. And so for all of us to exercise this, how many of us know about studying the Bible but don't do it? How many of us know about prayer but don't pray? I mean, it's a weird contradiction that we allow into our life to know that this will change the world. And we're like, God, change the world. He's like, well, do what I asked you to do. And we have a tendency to uh, think that, well, God can use something else other than his strategic plan. Not a good idea. Let's go with what God says. Paul the Apostle in Philippians 4, 6 through 8. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, just as a backdrop, Paul is in prison. So if you're thinking, well, yeah, it's easy to be anxious for nothing when everything's going great for you, Paul, but you have to understand, I'm going through a trial right now. He was in prison. <laughs> okay, so that should nullify all your arguments right there. Paul is in prison as he's writing this. 
So be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, and if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Strategy, right there. I mean, it's laid out for us, I and mean, we know exactly what to do, so hey, how about we do it? So let me just overview it here. The strategic mind, be anxious for nothing. That, that's a very clear statement. And so we're like, well, yeah, but Jesus, if you understood the time in which I lived, I mean, when truth has fallen in the streets and justice has turned away backwards, I mean, you would understand why I'm a little anxious right now. Well, I think God understands. I mean, he's lived through all these ages and generations. I think he understands. And he says, be anxious for nothing. Pray about everything. Well, that's a lot of things to pray about. It doesn't mean that you have to think of everything. You pray about everything that is coming to your mind. Every burden converted into a prayer. And if you become that catch, I mean, the, the enemy's not going to want to throw burdens at you if you're converting every single one of them into a prayer. See, as a strategy, it's a brilliant one because you recognize that if the cares that keep coming on you, if you refuse anxiety and you take all burdens and convert them into ground gain for the kingdom of heaven because our God answers prayer, it was like, hey, that's a pretty good strategy. Give thanks in every situation. Those aren't the situations that are just easy and comfortable like, oh, my, my lottery ticket won. Thank you, Lord. Okay, no, these are... Every situation, in fact, the strongest form, the most powerful form of thanksgiving is when what is taking place in the natural seems to go against even what we're asking for. And we thank God because we know he is going to turn all things to good. We know it. So as a result, with faith, we give thanks, knowing our God has the trump card. He's just about to play it. Let the peace of God umpire. So that concept of guard your hearts is the idea of making the decision, helping you understand. Let, just know that the peace of God will steer you in and through this process. And then he's going to give us a list of what to think on. Think on, thing, think on true things. There's a whole bunch of nonsense out there that isn't even true. And there's a bait to think on it. Why would you even waste your time thinking about it? Think on true things. So if you want a hint of where to find some true things, the Word of God is a great place to start, right? We oftentimes go out looking for it elsewhere. The Word of God is a great place to start. Think on noble things. Think on just things. So instead of thinking about all the injustice, think about the justice of God. I mean, isn't it interesting, just things? Think about the shed blood of Christ, who is actually, I mean, talk about an injustice, what he is facing. However, the just shall live by faith. We are justified. He is the author of true justice. So think on things that are just. Think on pure things. Think on lovely things. Think on things that bear a good report. Well, that's not the news. Think on virtuous and praiseworthy things. Now, doesn't it feel negligent to not think on the things that are, you know, just falling to pieces around you? It's not that you won't know about them. I remember one of my experiments was to not 
watch sports, think about sports, uh, and I was going to focus on, on Jesus. It was a very unique season where I was wanting to prove that the pleasure that is found at his right hand and, and being in his presence is greater than the pleasures of sports. Because I had found extreme pleasure in following sports and playing sports, and I wanted to prove that the pleasures at his right hand are better. And so I was going to turn off sports and I was going to turn my intentions entirely onto Christ. Now what's weird is in that time I knew exactly what was happening in sports and I wasn't reading it or anything. I just walked through the supermarket and I see the newspaper and it's like, what, the Rockies are in the playoffs? That's incredible. No, stay focused, Ludi. And then the Rockies end up making it to the World Series. I mean, could you, the one time I am fast in sports, the Rockies make it to the World Series. You've got to be kidding. And what's funny is I knew it the whole time. I knew what was happening, but I was focused. Just like you can know that the world is crumbling to pieces. That's fine. But you make your focus Jesus Christ. It's sort of hard to avoid the fact that we got issues right now. But don't fix your gaze on the issues. Fix your gaze on the solution. We have a solution. His name is Jesus Christ. Remember him in the midst of all this. So the attitude of victory. So in the book of Philippians, you're going to see this word attitude, depending on the translation you, you use. Mind will be another translation. The Greek word is phreneo. But one of the best ways of, of likening it to is glasses. And so when you put on these glasses, you see things differently. And then, oh, I want to take off those glasses and stick on. Whoa, 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 everything looks different through those glasses. And God nods and goes, I know. That's why I'm telling you to wear this attitude. This is the attitude. These are the glasses Jesus wore. I remember my mom gave me for Christmas once the cologne that George Washington wore. It's one of the coolest gifts I've ever received. I have no idea if it was accurate, if he, if he wore it. But I, don't tell young Eric that because this was... This was one of the coolest things. I mean, like, I smell like George Washington. I mean, that was, that was so cool. But could you imagine this? Someone gives you a, a package and says, by the way, these are the, the glasses that Jesus wore. Jesus wore glasses? Yeah, yeah he did. He, he had 20-20 vision, but uh, he still wore glasses. And you take him out. It's like, Whoa, I can see the way Christ sees the world. Isn't that cool? That's better than the cologne of George Washington, you have to admit. That's amazing. So the attitude, the freneo, the mindset of victory. Put on these glasses, guys. So we're going to walk through Winston Churchill and his appropriations. See, right now in late 1943, he's feeling unsteady. He's feeling neglected by, the, by America and Stalin's, you know, rude as can be. He feels the weight of the world. He goes up and down. You're going to just see it in his memoirs, but he is, I'm going to bring him back, and I'm going to say, okay, Churchill, do you remember the night of December 7th, 1941? Yeah. Okay, let's rehearse it afresh. What did you know was true that night? So this is so powerful, and I gave this message, it was on Easter when we were in quarantine, uh, if you remember that, and so uh, my Easter message was uh, called something like, Awakening the Giant or the Sleeping Giant, something like that, which was about this. And I gave these quotes in that. So most of us are going to look at it as a terrible negative that Pearl Harbor, Harbor was bombed on December 7th, 1941. Okay, that, that's just terrible, right? For all of us as Americans, like, oh, wail and, and cry. Churchill is going to look at it very differently. You know, he's sorry that men lost their lives. However, this is the greatest thing that could possibly happen. Why? because the Americans are finally going to get into the war. And if the Americans are in the war, the Allies will win. 
It's that simple. It's like A plus B equals C. And so Churchill is actually, you're, well, I'm going to read it for you. I mean, this is going to be a mindset shift. It's like, let's take off these glasses. I'm standing against the world all alone, and they're more powerful than me. All right. Whoa! Victory! We're going to win this thing. December 7th of 1941 is a long time before the final victory is gained. And yet he knows he has victory from that moment. This is what he says. This is December 7th, 1941. We had won the war. What a strange thing to say. It's like, uh, Churchill, you're, you're in 1941. Uh, is this like an Alzheimer's type of a experience you're going through? I mean, he wrote this after the war. I mean, what's going on here? We had won the war. England would live. Britain would live. The Commonwealth of Nations and the Empire would live. Listen to his reasoning. How long the war would last or in what fashion it would end, no man could tell, nor did I at that, this moment care. Once again in our Long Island history, we should emerge, however mauled or mutilated, safe and victorious. We should not be wiped out. Our history would not come to an end. We might not even have to die as individuals. Hitler's fate was sealed. Mussolini's fate was sealed. As for the Japanese, they would be ground to powder. All the rest was merely the proper application of overwhelming force. The British Empire, the Soviet Union, and now the United States, bound together with every scrap of their life and strength, were, according to my lights, twice or even thrice the force of their antagonists. No doubt it would take a long time. I expected terrible forfeits in the East, but all this would be merely a passing phase. United, we could subdue everybody else in the world." Many disasters, immeasurable cost, and tribulation lay ahead. Isn't this interesting? I mean, what he's describing is Christianity. He knows that he has a victory, but he knows that ahead of him lies tribulation. But I tell you what, he's gleeful. Why? Because he knows the end. But there was no more doubt about the end. Being saturated and satiated with emotion and sensation, I went to bed on the night of December 7th, 1941, and slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. So one of his best nights of sleep in the entire war was on a night <laughs> that most of us as Americans are like, excuse me, but I'd like you to be pacing around in your room tonight, oh Winston Churchill, we're not sleeping so well. The Christian, in the midst of a night when no one else is sleeping, can sleep like a baby. Why? Because we know the end. But don't you realize there's going to be years of tribulation before you? Yeah, but I know we've won. I know the enemy is going down. Therefore, oh, I know it will cost us dearly. I know it will be challenging, but that doesn't intimidate me. I know that we have the victory. It's so easy to lose this attitude. And I'm watching Churchill in late 1943. I mean, he's writing this after the war. He already knows that there's victory, right? But you could see him, his frustration from 1943 is coming out. I feel his hurt in how Eisenhower is treating him. I, I feel his frustration in, and the weights upon him as he's trying to get Operation Overlord, which we know as D-Day, set up. And it's immense pressures, timing. And then Stalin is, is going to kick into gear again. And you can feel it come out almost like he's walking through it afresh and old wounds are coming to the surface. This is hard. 
However, Churchill, I want to bring you back to December 7th, 1941, and I want you to bottle that up, and I want you to take it into late 1943, open it up, and smell it afresh. Have you ever noticed that a smell actually brings you back uh, to memories? I remember I had a very difficult time in my life where my family moved uh, to Oh, where was it? Somewhere like Longmont, Colorado. And it was a very hard time for me in the transition. I, was so, I had so many friends where I was, and then my family moved. I didn't know anyone. I was in the middle of a school year, and everyone was threatened by me. Every little group was threatened by me. And I remember going, I'd forget my lunch almost every day. My mom would like, Eric, you forgot your lunch again? She has to drop it off at school. I was just dizzy with the confusion and the trauma uh, of life. And there was a cologne I had during that time. And I remember when I came home from college one year, I was digging in my parents' bathroom and I found something of my, my own. I opened it up, it's like, hey, there's my cologne. I opened up the lid of it and I tell you what, whew, it brought me back. And I felt it's like, oh, well, screw that thing on and throw it out. I do not like those emotions. However, if you were to invert that and remember that smell when you saw clearly, when you had that clear hope, when you knew that Jesus sat on that throne, when you knew that he was the triumphant king of kings coming in the clouds, when you saw on his thigh inscribed king of kings and lord of lords, the faithful and true is in charge. When you saw that, unscrew it. Just carry it around with you guys and keep the lid off. (sighs) And you'll sleep the sleep of the saved. It's so easy to lose this attitude. And that's why it's so important that we exhort one another to remember what Christ has done, to remember where he sits right now, to remember that he is not satisfied with where things are at, that he is disturbed even more than we are, that he desires all men to be saved, and that he has chosen us as his delivery vehicle. So now we're going to go into Isaiah 59, where we were, we're going to now pick up. Isaiah 59 was desperate. I mean, it was bad. And and yet you're going to see God's response to it. So so this is the very end of what we read, and then we're going to transition out of it into a whole different different mentality. So truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. Now listen, it's like you, you, you begin to hear this swelling background track, you know, the, that is like movie-esque, and it's, it's heroic. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he is himself going to come to this earth and be the intercessor. It says, for he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay. Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, the coastlands he will fully repay. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. 
Listen to this. I have quoted this many times throughout this process. This key line is a promise in Scripture. And look at the context. Our God sees and he is displeased. And he will respond himself. He will not let injustice go without being met with righteous judgment. So it says, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your, of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and evermore. So when we recognize our position afresh, so what is your position? If you're in Christ and you remember where Christ is, he is seated at the right hand of God. It should just settle everything right there. That's like uncorking the the smell. Ah, that's what I needed to remember. I needed to remember where he sits. He's enthroned. He has all power, all authority, and all things are underneath his feet. That means all the nonsense that we see is underneath his feet. He is greater. And, you know, according to my wits, or according to my lights, I think is how Churchill says it, we were twice or thrice the power of our enemy. Well, uh, yeah, the devil has one-third of the angelic host, you know, that went traipsing off with him. So that means God's angelic host is double the size. So according to my lights, (laughs) I like that statement, that's sort of cool. According to my lights, uh, we have double the angelic host. We double the demons, Right? And then we have God. <laughs> you know what? I, I think we can sleep the sleep of the saved tonight, knowing that our God is greater. Psalm 2, 2 through 4. So let's get into the mind of the general. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's his Christ, his Christos. Saying, uh-oh, this is a bad situation. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. What's God going to do, guys? Oh, no, this is a desperate hour. The kings of the earth are setting themselves. The rulers are taking counsel together. No, say it isn't so. What is the one enthroned in heaven going to do? Some of you are like, I know the scripture, Eric. Why, why, are you, why are you saying this? Because I want us to feel it afresh. I do not want us to just go, yeah, I know that scripture. I want us to climb into the scripture. I want us to embody this. I want us to know this. I want us to walk this out. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. That's the mind of our general. Is he intimidated by all this bluster, by all this bluff, by all this nonsense, by all these lies? Is the truth intimidated? It would light be intimidated by darkness. Would life be intimidated by death? Death is merely the absence of something. And when life steps in, death has no hold. What is darkness? It's merely the absence of something. So when light shows up, darkness dissipates. We can do a scientific test on that and prove it. Make everything dark and then bring some light in and see who wins. Let's stick them in a room together and let's see who wins. We need to remember that we are children of the light. 
Therefore, even though the enemy has a big voice right now, our God is greater. So what is our position? We need to remember that. 1 Corinthians 2.16, we have the mind of the general. We have the mind of Christ. This is a gift to us. We can walk with this. We can live with this. We can cherish this reality and cultivate it. Okay, great quote to finish, guys. C.T. Studd. This is a very C.T. Studd-esque message anyways, and so this fits well. If God who sits in the heavens can laugh, his children on earth should be loyal enough to do exactly as their father does. Father, empower us to laugh, to be anxious for nothing, to pray, and to make our request known unto our God with thanksgiving. And every burden that hits us, I pray that we would convert it into an active operation, a military operation of prayer. Lord Jesus, fit us for battle. Dress us in your armor. Make us ready to represent your name in this earth. We are Christians. We are children of the Most High God. We have a light, and may we lift it high and shine it right now. It's in the precious name we pray this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.